Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hype Nuts for August 2018. I am writer-rumoured James Bond actor, director and car, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Rochelle Semenovich, writer-critic-film-festival truant. You skived out on the film festival this I year. do blame you, partly, because of all the People hyphenates do. work that you've uh, had me doing. But, yeah, I always find film festivals a little bit tricky to fit in with my ridiculous life. Mm. Um, but I did manage to see a few films and... Uh, we're going to talk about some of those. We are. It's very exciting. Yeah, we both um, did the film festival, not nearly as hard as I think either of us have done in the past. <laughs> um, but, but you know, we've got an excuse because we recorded our 100th episode. This is episode 99 that you're listening to now. We recorded uh, episode 100 already because time and space means nothing to us. Uh, we did it live at the Melbourne International Film Festival. If you weren't there, don't worry because the episode will be released into the feed next month. If you were there, listen anyway, because you might hear something that did not take place at the live recording. Hmm, intriguing. Can't wait for that one. You you sound intrigued. I am. Well, I kind of know what it is. But yeah, it was a great episode. Greg McLean Mm -hmm. um, talking about the films of Ridley Scott, and it's really well worth um, a listen. So. Yes, yeah. and uh, we will be joined uh, by this month's guest, Dana Reed, a little later in the show. But before we get to that, we saw a number of films at Myth, including a number by filmmakers we've covered on Hyphenates in the past. So we thought we'd take a little break from new releases just to talk about some of those that we saw at the festival. Um, so who should kick off? Should we flip a coin? Well, so. I believe that you saw Terry Gilliam's The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Lee. I did, I did. After years and years of waiting, I saw uh, this film, which is about uh, Toby, who is a brash young uh, TV commercials director uh, who abandons his latest production when he realises that he is right near the location of his student film uh, in which years ago he convinced a Spanish cobbler to play Don Quixote. Uh, Upon Toby's return, he discovers that the cobbler was so taken with the role, he believed himself to be the actual Don Quixote, much to the chagrin of the townsfolk, and Don believes Toby to be Sancho. And so the two embark on a somewhat surreal journey through the countryside and time itself. Now, the fact that this film even exists blows my mind. Um, Back in uh, 2003, I was working in a high school, and we would show the media students Lost in La Mancha. Mm as a sort of test, because if we showed that to them and they still wanted to make films, we knew they had the bug. Uh, Lost in La Mancha, which is kind of like the making of this film, but made 15 years before the film came out. It was a behind-the-scenes tale of Gilliam trying and failing to make this film. Uh, The original starred Johnny Depp and Jean Rochefort, and when he started filming in the late 1990s, he'd already spent a decade trying to get it off the ground. It was a combination of financial and meteorological conditions that scuppered filming, and he spent years fighting to get the rights back and get the financing back up. We probably talked about this back in our Gilliam episode. So, who, who covered Gilliam? Uh, Mike Bartlett. Okay, I'll have yeah. to look out for that one. There'll be a link in the show notes uh, <laughs> if you don't want to go trawling through the uh, index page. Yeah, so over the years, he nearly made it again with like Ewan McGregor and Robert Duvall and Jack O'Connell and John Hurt. And he finally made it with Adam Driver and Jonathan Price. And the relief at this thing finally being made, I think overwhelms the fact of whether the film is good or not. I think that's almost irrelevant. Like, I loved it. I think it's wonderfully realised. It's got those great moments of Gilliam-esque flair and surrealness, but the quixotic quest to get the film made is what matters in this case. I think there's no coincidence that Driver's character's name is Toby Grisoni and Gilliam's longtime co-writer is Tony Grisoni because it just solidifies the fact that this filmmaker is not Gilliam. Gilliam is Quixote, and the fact that 
Quixote ended up being Jonathan Price, the star of, you know, Brazil, which is Gilliam's triumph, is, is just perfect, you know. Quixote is a dreamer and Toby is a cynical sellout and Gilliam was never able to sell out. He, he knows he remained that deluded dreamer and that's why I love him and that's why I love this film. Mm. Well, it took 25 years to make. Um, mm. Do we know if he's happy with the result? I think so. I think so. I kind of watch him talk about it on social media a bit. I think he's pretty... I think he's just pleased to have, have conquered that mountain like, or conquered that windmill, I should say. If he died without having made it, he would have haunted us forever, which would have been fun for us. But, yeah. you know, unfinished business on Earth. So, yeah, it's a big deal. I think he, I think he's pleased. So uh, what have you seen? I saw uh, Gus Van Sant's He Won't Get Far on Foot. Mm. I'd heard great things about this film, but in the end it was kind of a conventional biopic based on the 1989 memoir by quadriplegic cartoonist John Callahan. Um, he's played by Joaquin Phoenix, and it's set in the 70s and 80s when he's this alcoholic 21-year-old and he goes on this all-day party with Jack Black, no less. Mm-hmm. And ends... Who hasn't done that? I'm, I know. And who wouldn't want to do that? Jack Black has a kind of fairly minor role in this film, but it's key and he's really good in it, I've got to say. But, yeah, this all-day bender ends up with John in a wheelchair with only limited use of his hands, which makes being a cartoonist later on in his life kind of um, painstaking. So the thing that saves him is joining AA. Of course. Yeah, and you've got to, you've got to say that's a, a kind of traditional thing to do. A sort of, it's a very self-help kind of motif and I kind of wasn't expecting Gus Van Sant to do that but that's the actual story by John Callahan. So he goes to these AA meetings that are held in the mansion owned by this bearded hippie gay guru played by Jonah Hill and there are a bunch of fellow alcoholics there that um, share their stories and they're played by Beth Ditto, Udo Kia and Kim Gordon, which, you know, is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got Rooney Mara playing the love interest here and she's this occupational therapist come airline stewardess with a Swedish accent and that's as difficult to buy on screen as it sounds but I've got to say she does quite well with the role and Mm. even though I think there were people coming out of the film saying what was she doing with this quadriplegic guy like I don't know if the love the love story did feel a bit tacked on yeah Yeah, it's a kind of rambling film and um, Jonah Hill really steals the show you've got to see his dance around his um, his house in these really short shorts and I think he's probably going to get a Best Supporting Actor nomination for this role. Okay. Yeah, this is probably one of the more conventional Gus Van Sant movies, so it's not one of the arty experimental ones like Elephant or Jerry, mm. but it's not an all-out crowd-pleaser like Goodwill Hunting either. It sort of looks kind of cheap and it's a good film in the Gus Van Sant oeuvre and I think mm. if you want to catch up on that, um, Glenn Dunks did Gus Van Sant for Hell is for Hyphen. It's October 2011. Yep, that is true. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what he does with it because, you know, Van Sant's quite hit and miss, regardless of which genre he's working in, like his arty stuff or his more mainstreamy stuff. You know, he's, you know, for every, you know, Goodwill Hunting, there's a Finding Forrester. Yeah. Um, and while you're the man now, dog, is the greatest line in cinema history, <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to not see that film ever again. I don't think Gus Van Sant's had a really great film for a long time. Well, I think his last film, Sea of Trees, I was waiting for that to get released so we could review it, and it never came out here. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's a bad it sign. It may be great. Yeah, it might be. <laughs> we wouldn't I, be able prob- to call it that. It probably wasn't if it never came out. I think we're getting <laughs> a, it's a safe bet. No, I'm, I'm keen to see it. 
yeah, I'll be interested to hear what you say. Well, uh, yeah, we also talk, I mean, since we're name-checking all the previous guests who have talked about uh, these filmmakers, uh, we talked Guy Madden with guest Hayley Inch, and I actually uh, ran into Hayley in line for uh, Guy Madden's latest film, The Green Fog. He teams with co-directors uh, Evan Johnson and Galen Johnson uh, to make one of the strangest films uh, you will ever see. So it's, bas- it's so hard to describe. It's basically a remake of Hitchcock's Vertigo, but they didn't shoot anything new. It's because it's also a tribute to San Francisco and they take almost every film and TV show that's ever been made in San Francisco from uh, the streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas and Carl Malden, the TV show, to things like Sneakers and Robert Wise's Born to Kill, which I would not have noticed if not. There's a really distinct shot of from Born to Kill, which is an obscure film of them running up sand dunes. And if we hadn't covered Robert Wise at the start of the year, I would not have picked it. I was like, ah, there we go. Born to Mm. Kill. Um, so basically they take all of these clips and edit them, edit them together in this really strange way to remake Vertigo. But they also remove dialogue from most scenes, so it's just looks between people. They take all the moments that don't have dialogue and just edit them together. And it's kind of poignant, but also really hilarious. Like, it's a really funny film. Yeah. It's, it's a really ridiculous movie. It's, it should not work in either concept or execution, but it's the most I've enjoyed a film all year. Yeah. Yeah. So there is dialogue in it. There is some, yeah. Yeah. But for the most part, there are just scenes that where you can tell, like someone opens their mouth to talk and they cut to the other person reacting and it's just all these long looks. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to see it. It's so strange. sounds great. I mean, um, I was doing a little bit of reading about it and, Mm. um, you know, avant-gardists have been repurposing archival footage forever. Yeah. Um, but the consensus seems to be that this one actually creates a coherent and entertaining narrative. Um, I, I don't know if coherent is... <laughs> like, you can tell they've put them together in a distinct order. It's not just a clip show. Yeah. It is telling a story. I don't think it's a coherent story, but... I it's think, entertaining. Yeah, you'd have to watch it a few times to figure out what the story is, I think, they're telling, but it's very entertaining. Like... I don't. I didn't see anyone in that cinema that didn't have the best time ever. Yeah, there's a really good review, an essay by J.R. Jones in the Chicago Reader about this film, okay. and um, yeah, it, it just made me want to go out and see it because it sounds great. And I mean, it's 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 not long, is it? Oh no, it was very short. In fact, it was preceded by a short film that Madden and Johnson and Johnson made called Accidents. Yeah, nine minutes, which is. The opposite of Green Fog, it was this incredibly elaborate production with almost no post-production, or at least post-production that's, you know, invisible to the eye. It's like a single shot of a building with dozens of scenes taking place across all the balconies. Yeah. Like, the you know, the face of a building. And I'm not going to say too much because even though it's like a nine-minute Canadian short film that no one's ever going to see, I just can't bring myself to spoil it surprises, but have you seen the REM music video uh, Imitation of Life? Mm, not sure. It's basically this wide shot of a party. And it's six seconds long or something. Yeah. And each person at that party is doing a, a moment from the song. And they just keep zo- zooming in and out and replaying a bit over and over again. It's not quite that, but it reminded me of that a lot. Look, I'll put, I'll put the video clip in the show notes if you've never seen it. Because it's, uh, it's a really great clip. But, yeah, if you get the chance to see not just Green Fog but Accidents, um, yeah, I'm dying to see them both again. Yeah. Well, re- reading the show notes for um, the Guy Madden episode... Um, from back when you did it with Hayley, mm. um, I looked up Heart of the World, his oh, short yeah, film, yeah. and um, I'd never seen it before. Mm. It's amazing. So thank you for making uh, making these 
Amazing resources available through the show notes, Lee. Very well <laughs> My done. My pleasure. I'm, I'm so <laughs> glad you, you got a lot out of them. Now, there was actually one film that we both saw. I know. This festival, is going to be great. Exciting. We can have possibly differing opinions on it. <laughs> Let's find out. Um, that film is Everybody Knows, a Spanish-language kidnap drama written and directed by Iranian director Asghar Fahadi. It's the film that opened this year's Cannes Film Festival. Hyphenates covered Fahadi in February 2017 with Tina Hassania talking about his films like The Past, A Separation, About Ellie, and also discussing his decision not to attend the Oscars where his film The Salesman won Best Foreign Film or was up for it at the time of recording. So in many ways, everybody knows is classic Fahadi. There's Hitchcockian suspense and beautifully observed melodrama as we watch a family dissolve in crisis. The story centres on Laura, Penelope Cruz, who returns to her home village in Spain to attend her sister's wedding. She's been in Argentina for the many years and brings her two children with her, including her vivacious teenage daughter. There's a sense of unease at the family celebrations and unresolved tension with Paco, Javier Bardem, an old family friend who now owns the winery they used to run. When the daughter is kidnapped, Paco steps in to help and it becomes clear that somebody very close to the family is responsible for the crime. Lee, how do you think Fahadi's style translates to a Spanish story? For the most part, I think it translates really well. I I, I think the change in location and language is seamless Mm. i think his i don't know if it was an attempt to do more of a traditional genre piece or like a more sort of plot driven film rather than character driven uh that's where i think he fumbled a bit where Mm. because i think his strength is in human drama and the moral Mm. conundrum of being stuck between you know desires and societal norms and this film has a lot of that but it's so much more contrived because there's this kidnapping plot driving it all. Yeah. And I feel the first half of the film is as good as anything he's done because it's all character stuff until yeah. the kidnapping happens. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of torn, but I did really like it. What, what did you make of it? Yeah, the same. I wasn't really that interested in the kidnapping plot, which I, I don't know if that's a strength or a weakness, but I felt like, it, you know, the more interesting um, material was the interplay between the characters and trying to work out what, is happening in this family and mm. its dynamics. Yeah. So I've got to say, I, it took me a while to work out who was who with all these characters because it's a big Spanish family mm. and, like, who's who's a sister, who's a cousin, who's a friend. It's sort of got some familiar Fahadi themes, like the resentment between the characters who've stayed at home versus the characters who've been sort of more sort of politically progressive yeah. um, or economically successful. So, yeah, that sort of wealth, poverty, conservatism, progressivism is there. I thought that the relationship between Laura and Paco, you know, I really like seeing Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem play on screen. They've done it before, of course, several times at least yeah. with Hamon Hamon yeah. and Vicky Cristina Barcelona. But now they're married, so it, that extra textual element, you know. That, that almost, like, threw me for a loop because it's that weird sort of... It's not really stunt casting, but, like you kind of want them to get together because you know that they're together off screen. And Mm. so it's weird seeing them both married to other people in the the film. And you're like, come on, guys, have an affair. Like, you're you're married. So, so, you know. But I think that works within the context of this particular story. Making the audience want them to... Yeah, because they are playing, you know, characters who have that romantic history and maybe they do belong together. Yeah, that's, that's probably right, actually. Yeah. 
It, it does, it, yeah, because you feel that history between them because yeah. we know that, yeah, that's They grew that's up true. together as kids and, um, I mean, th- who plays her husband in this film? Ricardo Durin. Yeah. Great yeah. Argentinian actor from The Aura and Secret in Their Eyes and Nine Queens. He's just, yeah, I love him. Yeah, he's mm. a bit of a mysterious and troubled character here and they don't really look right together, but I think that's mm. intentional. Yeah. You know, that's part of the mystery. Yeah. We're all hyphenates juggling multiple careers and trying our hands at countless different things. But few people achieve big success in even one discipline, let alone two. How do you go from being one of Australia's top comic performers to one of our top directors, working on almost every TV show in the country, making a big feature film and now directing for one of the most high-profile TV series in the world with The Handmaid's Tale? Well, it's a good thing we waited until this episode to ask this very specific question because we're now joined by the one person who can answer it, Dana Reed. Welcome, Dana. Thank you for having me. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Dana, how do you go from being a comic actor and writer to being a director? Oh, well, look, I have to say that the, the comedy thing really was... A bit of a, a left turn. It's one of those very, very daggy things that when I was um, a kid, I saw Star Wars and I went, that's what I want to do. It's really lame, but it's the truth. And I just went, and I was very, very um, kind of fixated from then. I was also a dancer and in Perth at the time, where I'm from, it was before television was nationalised, so the TV shows made their own little you know kind of kids stuff and talent shows and I was on a couple of those you know in the talent team you know a little little bit like Johnny Young was a talent time thing Mm. and so I also learned about television at the same time so that the Star Wars thing happened then I got really really interested in television production through all of that so um that was kind of on my path I went to university to do film and television and they said to me if you want to be a director you should do some acting so I just thought I'd do a couple of units at the Heyman Theatre at Waite, the West Australian Institute of Technology, which is now Curtin. And it was the best fun I'd ever had. It was like the meeting of the minds of the kind of people. I mean, and I just kind of fell in love with all of that and all of them, the people there. Um, and so when my colleagues auditioned for the theatre schools, like NIDA and PCA and um, WAPA in Western Australia, I did too. So I, And then I got in. And so I kind of sidestepped started doing the whole acting thing graduated from drama school absolutely unemployed so I wrote a play with a couple of colleagues of mine that happened to be funny and that is when I started working I started working on the Jim Owen show first and then went to um, Full Frontal after that so it kind of was just you know it was a left left turn really but so, I'm so very goal, very glad the goal was to be a director always right yeah so it, when I was at uh, university uh, and doing the theatre course there one of my colleagues and best friends is uh, Frances O'Connor who's one of our you know a great Australian actress mm. so really it was kind of that friendship that kind of took me that way initially so um, yeah and we had lots of interesting people like Judith Lucy went there it was a really interesting place so, yeah, it was kind of just by accident, really, that it, it happened that way. But as I say, I'm so glad that it happened that way. The years that I spent doing those shows, um, and then I did Sean McCaleb's show as well, because he was, um, you know, 
we started out with full frontal writing and performing on that. Um, it was an incredible experience to be to be hanging out with with those people who are still doing the most amazing things. Mm. I mean, Eric Banner was one of my you know. Uh, what do you call it, colleagues? Mm, never heard that, of them. No, that show, you know, and Kitty Flanagan, who is just, you know, yeah. to watch her really, you know, to have had this massively long career and to be just the best that she can be as she you know, keeps going, it's just, I, it, it was a great honour yeah. to be able to muck about with those idiots. <laughs> well, I've always felt that, like, comedians were perfectly suited to drama because there's so much, so much of comedy is using every single like nuance and and gesture to sell a joke and if you can do that then you can probably translate that to drama and you know you look at people like Robin Williams or Jim Carrey who really make that transition well would you agree with that and does that same equation apply to directing look I think I've never thought about in uh, about directing but I, I do think Everything we do borders, you know, is bordering on heartbreak so often, you know, especially in, in dramas and things that we're up against. And when we do find ourselves in the difficult parts of our lives, you know, when I, I'm digressing, but when I often work with actors and teach acting classes, actors want to go to the angry, sad place. You know, they want and they will go there. And most of the time we're trying not to go to the angry, sad place. So we will smile through our heartbreak, we will try and laugh our way through a difficult situation, which is way to see someone struggle against what they actually uh, feel is so heartbreaking. I mean, I think that's, you know, that's what I, I do love about so many comedians because that, I mean, you've obviously watched um, Nanette, I don't know, the Hannah Gadsby thing, and it just borders on that. Mm. I mean, most of the comics have got so many things that they're dealing with. It's why they're funny. It's why they're wonderful. And so that just sits on the surface, that, that balance, and I think that's where the most beautiful performances come. The exception of I Love You Too and Skit House, there's not really a lot of comedy on your CV. Like there's, there's some stuff that sort of straddles rom-com and dramedy, but is that by design or are you, are, you just, are you naturally drawn to drama or is it just there's not much comedy out there? No, no, I think it's, it's one of those funny old things and I... Yeah, we struggle with this all the time, that even at the awards nights, comedy gets relegated to the cheap seats. Mm. I think that is you know, a crime. I've, it's almost like, don't get me started. Because you know, I obviously hold comic performers, comic writers in the highest regard. I think it's the hardest thing to do. Mm. It's the hardest thing to perform. It's that you, know, you either have it or you don't. So you know, I really do identify still with that part of the industry um it's just the way kind of it falls with drama that's where i'm headed I mean, it's not i mean i would love to do more mm. comedy um it just has to be the the right thing i mean yeah i remember really this is awful and i don't know what this to be true but someone said to me you know when i was d- probably doing one of those big drama shows and said oh you'll never do sketch comedy again and that i, th- I found that actually quite heartbreaking because that's mm. one of the best fun jobs i've ever had like it, that those people were extraordinary and so clever. And Damien Callanan, who was in that, and of course his movie's about to come out, which I cannot wait to go and see. It's great. It's so much fun. Oh, well, oh, you've the seen merger. it. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. I just, it's just they are all so brilliant and talented. I hold them all in such high regard as well. So, yeah, let's hope that's not true, that, you know, that there's um, more comedy to come. And if no other comedy shows come along, could you just make, if you do ha- more Handmaid's Tale, could you just make that funny? Look, I have to say, if you have a look at Holly, episode 11, mm. there were moments where even in all that 
pain and suffering where Elizabeth Moss found this lovely comic timing. And, of course, that's the thing. You, I, I love to see that. I mm. practice it seeing it and go, well, that's in the cut. You know, that's, that's there, that little moment. You can find those tiny little moments, you know, when she's <laughs> trying to get out of that house and then she realises, yeah, she's got to go back into the house again to change her clothes. It's like, fuck me. <laughs> it's just that little... There's just those moments where you go... If you can find that levity, because it's always there. It's always, always there in all the situations you find yourself in. Is, you know, the worst situations. There, there can be a very insane light moment that, you know, you, we're always trying to break the bad stuff that we're going through. Mm. So, yes, even in that, we've, there were moments. You uh, directed episodes 11 and 12 mm-hmm. of... Season Not a lot of laughs in 12, I have to say. Sorry? There weren't a lot of laughs in 12. <laughs> no. Oh, God. No. Yeah, there weren't that many opportunities for goofing off in that one. <laughs> so The Handmaid's Tale is, I guess that's, that's the thing that you've done that sort of launched you into a different category of directing, would you say? It's, it's certainly a thing that, you know, people look at your at your filmography now and go, The Handmaid's Tale is just so hot right now. Do you feel like this has been a, a sort of, a really different experience from the other work that you've done? Look, it's so interesting how, how similar it actually is, except that it's minus 20, and I'd never experienced anything like that before. That mm. was hard. And, you know, the, a lot of the time, because our budgets are less here in Australia, you're problem-solving all the time because you, you, know, you can't have that and you can't have that. And you can't, you know, so it's about how to um, solve the problem with less. You know, but I'm not saying we, we make great things. Mm. It's just... You know, budgets are different in different parts of the world for different shows. And I love the problem-solving nature of, you know, how can we achieve the best, you know, with, a, say, a limited schedule, for mm. example. You know, we can't shoot as long or, you know, all that sort of stuff. So, in a sense, that's still the same. Probably there was maybe a bit more time to shoot on The Handmaid's Tale, but not much for what you're trying to achieve. So, as far as a, a work day goes, it felt really similar. You know, it's the fact that I a, was a massive fan of the show was... And it's genre as well, which I love. Mm. Um, so that was very exciting. So that felt like being in a, in a world, a dystopian future was fun for me because I'm a big sci-fi nut. So that felt different, but um, the workday feels the same. As someone with a background in performing, do you find that that informs the way you um, work with actors oh, as yeah. a director? Yeah, I don't, mm. I'm, I'm so glad it kind of worked out that way because what I found that I loved when I was an actor was breaking down the script and and what I call working out the music of the script, which can change. It's like an arrangement. You think, you know, um, of where you can push-pull with different lines and and all that sort of stuff. Um, And that's what I loved when I was an actor. And I can still... That's what I love as a director. So I don't feel any loss from not performing um, because it's still still there kind of work, but I'm working it out with another actor. who And that person is kind of putting themselves on the line because I have the greatest respect for actors because they do that every day. You know, they're auditioning all the time and they're doing, they're learning those lines and preparing those scenes for no money for hours and hours and they turn up and they may not get the job and there's no other profession where you would do that. People would just go, what? No, I'm not just not doing that and they do it constantly. So I'm very glad that, you know, I kind of have that knowledge so that we can, you know, Talk about the text, talk about the character, talk about all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's probably it's my favourite bit. And look, as a massive fan of Full Frontal, I have to ask if this directing lark doesn't work out, will you consider returning to perform? 
no. Damn it. I'll just put the script back in my bag. Here. <laughs> All right, Dana, which filmmaker have you selected to talk about on Hell is for Hyphenates? So I have selected John Hughes to talk about. Now, it's really interesting because, you know, I think when we speak about John Hughes now and looking back on it in hindsight, we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which Molly Ringwald, of course, wrote an article in The New Yorker Mm. about, which is, you know, there's a little bit of date rape kind of culture going on in there. And... uh, and look, when we first spoke and I chose who I wanted to choose, you know, we spoke about lots of filmmakers, but um, going with John Hughes, I thought, do I run away from that or do I go with it? Do we talk about it anyway? And I thought, no, we have to talk about it regardless because that is there, absolutely. But I cannot deny that in my teen years, those films, will, the ones we'll talk about today, so that uh, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 16 Candles and Pretty in Pink were so seminal in development, um, but because there was a female lead, not so much in Ferris, but, you know, but Molly Ringwald was so unique in the fact that I could go to the cinema as a young woman and there was a story about, centred around a young woman um, and an unusual young woman like who didn't look like anybody else and was you know, had struggles similar to my own. So I really thought... Regardless of, we should talk about those issues, but I'm still going to talk about those films and how they affected me as a, a youngster. The one thing about John Hughes' films also is the fact that they look great. Ferris Bueller is absolutely wonderful. It's mm. like the Japanese um, Takfu Jimoto uh, DOP. Yeah. But they're funny. Mm. I mean, you know, earlier we were talking about my comedy career, and I remember, um, and Skit House was great for this, I would fight to make it look good. And uh, at Roving, they were they were all for that. Whereas, you know, in the past, I'd really battled with certain, you know, old school uh, uh, comedy people saying, "Oh, darling, just put up a couple of flats and shine a light on it if, if it's funny or it's not." And you go, "It can look good and still be funny." Mm. So, the um, the John Hughes films did that for me. So they had a, a lovely aesthetic, especially Ferris Bueller. I think has a most spectacular aesthetic. Yeah, I've got to say I was so thrilled when you chose John Hughes because Ferris Bueller is a really important film to me. I was raised in a really religious family where I wasn't allowed to go to the cinema. It was the first film I saw in the cinema in 1986 at the age of 14. So this is my first sort of movie experience of, you know, an evil film and it just was not (laughs) evil. It was just so much fun but I kind of didn't know quite what I was watching either, you know? look, it's... It is so interesting, we'll probably get a bit amorphous in how we talk about this, but it's interesting that, you know, it's an evil film because let's talk about Ferris. Ferris could be the devil. I mean, he mm. is a complete bastard. How <laughs> terrible is he? A manipulator. And a manipulator, but he is so unbelievably charming and wonderful and with you, you know, that wonderful device of flicking the looks of the camera and including you mm. as a teen... You are literally included. It's not just that you know John Hughes is telling your story via Molly Ringwald's character in Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller looks at you and brings you in and says, "Yeah, oh yeah, you're with me. You're with me." And then, of course, he at the very end of the cinema tells you to you know bugger off and go home. Mm. And just cuts that tie because Ferris Bueller is a complete bastard. <laughs> 
and also like aware that he's in a film. I mean, that's that's something that happens in a lot of John Hughes films. The character will look at the camera, mm. not always address it, but there are a lot of films like in Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles, like the nerdy best friend character gets a moment to sort of look at the camera, yeah. which I actually found interesting because Molly Ringwald is the star of both of those films. It's her film, and yet I mean, it's the guy, it's the geeky guy, it's the John Hughes stand-in who gets the moment of looking in the camera that's true um, yes but yeah ferris is just talking into the camera the whole time he's with us in this he's manipulating us but yeah it's so it's it's such it's probably his funniest film because you know there's always an element of fantasy in all of his films and this is the ultimate fantasy you know you get to do you have to have the most amazing day ever you get to sing in front of a or not sing actually sorry i'm get, i'm trying to do too many things at once but let me ask you this there aren't many singing moments in his films but there are a lot of miming moments yes is there? Am I reading way too much into it to, by thinking that there's mimic? Because Ferris Bueller came out roughly the same time as Back to the Future, when Marty McFly invents rock and roll and he actually gets to perform. But the teens in John Hughes films are just sort of echoing what's come before. Oh my gosh, I have not drawn a parallel between <laughs> Marty McFly and Ferris Bueller. We could write a dissertation about that. I think that. We, we can and should. Yes, yeah. yes. I mean, I, I, I think the, the rock and roll really was just the him loving the medium mm. and taking the opportunity from time travel to, you know, to, to show off and, and, and be a star because he could do something that no one else could do mm. so, cause of, <laughs> because of the DeLorean. Look, you may be drawing a long bow, but, hey, it's a very interesting thought. Because mm. yeah. it co- crops up in a lot, like even in the really obscure ones like Dutch. Nobody remembers Dutch anymore. It's a film he wrote that with um, Ed... Uh, oh, who's the guy from Married with Children and Modern Family? Well, I don't know his name. Isn't that terrible? Yeah, it's no, gone. I've... It was not a sh- they were neither ones of the shows I watch. Yeah. Oh, well, anyway, that uh, it's, there are people screaming at us listening to this right now, screaming his name. But um, yeah, he, <laughs> like in almost every one of his films, including Dutch, it, there's a scene where he just takes a moment to have character is driving along in a car and mimes a song. And I just, I don't know, I find that really interesting. But also, I think for all of us, that's the lovely human thing about it is most of us aren't great singers. Mm. You know, most of us sing in the shower, and it's, I mean, personally, I wish it was a skill I had. You yeah. know, that's the—I I would love that. And I think the miming of that—you know—it's it, that moment of grasping for greatness, whether you're in the shower or in, in the in the car. I mean, and Ferris is, is the ultimate. It's in the parade. Mm. So I, I think there's something very, very human that we all relate to um, in doing something like that. I think that's what makes his films, you know. They were so successful and reached me as, as a, a, a teen was because there was such a humanity in them. You know, looking back at them now, there are a lot of dodgy things that he does, like absolutely. Um, mm. But there was even, you know, with Joan Cusack playing the girl in the scoliosis brace. Mm. Yeah. Now, I remember those was the greatest fear at high school is that you would end up in the scoliosis brace. And there were a few girls that were in it and it was horrifying to see those kids walk around in, in, in those things. And there is a school of thought will go, how dare John Hughes laugh at that mm. misfortune? But at the same time, the girls in the, in the brace at my school, for example, they all get shunned. Everyone is so afraid that it's going to be them that they, they you know, it's like, you, know, you see those girls, they were horrified at what, you know, being teenagers and having to wear this thing. Mm. And there was Joan Cusack, utterly relatable, utterly human, coping with her lot, getting on with her life, and being amazingly hilarious mm. and self-possessed. This could be because she's a, 
wonderful actress. Yeah. Um, but I remember it, it shifted in my brain for the horror of that, of that happening. You, suddenly, you saw someone going, I'm getting on with my life. I'm getting on with my life. I can't drink out of the water fountain, but I'm getting on with my life. <laughs> you know, that's sort of, it, it, there are always things that, you know, that we have to think about in hindsight. And you, but Hollywood has always done that. I mean, you know, so many movies are written by men and directed by men throughout history. Mm. I mean, it happens to me to this day where, as a female viewer, you're just not catered to. It's not about you. The female character is not you. I mean, I always bang on about the third gender theory. I bore my friends at dinner parties going, there's a third gender because all those women I'm seeing on the sides of buses and in magazines and you know, are not me. It's a different gender. Like, yeah. it, and so what happens when you're not related to in, a certain, in movies and television is your brain just skips over it. As a female viewer, you skip. You go, here's a bit I relate to, skip. Skip this bit, skip that bit, skip that bit, skip where I'm objectified, skip where that happens, skip there. Okay, let's look at Sea of Love, for example. I just don't know why I've pulled that out of the air, <laughs> but here's Al Pacino, fully clothed, and Ellen Barkin, fully naked. Mm. My mind, skip. Yeah, I, I do go, has he not gone to the gym? <laughs> yeah, just, oh, what? Why is that? Is she just, yeah, skip. So, you know, when I kind of think back on the John Hughes things, with the, especially 16 Candles seems to be the big culprit for the you know the date rape stuff and i remember my brain skipping over and i've forgotten the name of the character but the girl who cuts her own hair off because it's stuck in the door um and you 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 do feel uncomfortable and you skip it so i think i can't talk about those films without going that happened when i watched it but it happens with pretty much every movie as a female viewer you just go i'll just turn myself into a male viewer for a moment and relate to John McClane, even though I've got to say in Die Hard, we, Bonnie Bedelia is really fantastic and actually much more human and normal than we see now in Hollywood mm. cinema. Mm. You know, would Bonnie Bedelia get that role now? No, she would not. Mm. She, back then, there were more relatable women on the screen. So, yes, I think, you know, that's why I kind of thought, no, I'm still going to talk about it regardless of those issues that the John Hughes films have because I did relate to Molly Ringwald and I kind of go where's the Molly Ringwald now I mean we've got we've got Jennifer Lawrence because you know, I've got a, a, a 12 year old daughter about to turn 13 and I kind of go where are those films for her now like what, mm. what are we you know there's a lot of um, YA novels and uh, and she reads all of that sort of stuff um, and we get a lot of the fantastical genre stuff you know I love the Hunger Games you know it's you know wonderful stuff but I'm just kind of going where the Weird. ordinary teenagers. Yeah, the funny yeah. ordinary teenager. The, the fun, that, that's coming back to you know, um, the humanity of it um, and finding the humour in your own pain. You know, Cameron. Cameron has a terrible home life. Like it's, who wants Cameron's parents? Not me. It's awful. But we love Cameron and, and Cameron expresses himself and has a friend who in the in the end after torturing him <laughs> is there for him really you know that mm. so and you see the the kids around you and you identify with who is who in the zoo on the screen and it validated me i mean i'm sure it validated a lot of us mm. what you say about the third gender thing sort of makes me think about weird science which has not aged at all well but it's almost like you know, they create this woman, this 
fantasy woman uh, using what I understand is very accurate um, biochemistry. And, um, <laughs> but of course, you know, they end up with the real girls, which is still a fantasy in itself. But even, you know, there's even a part of Hughes that is aware that, you know, that's the, that's the part of his brain that wrote the Molly Ringwald roles, that, you know, the real... The well, real I think it feels like he's... Yeah, because I, I think we all went to the drive-ins one night and, you know, talked and, you know, ate chips and did not watch Weird mm. Science because it does, as a female viewer, we've got no interest in that sort of stuff at all and totally made that choice to not, you know, didn't even go really to... Going to the drive-ins in Perth was not about the movies, it was about the... You know, socialising and yeah. all the different cars that were there, and but yeah, just not interested in that that picture at all because of that. But is John Hughes? You were going through all the things that he has written, as well as directed, and you now he's a jobbing writer in Hollywood mm. who has a massive smash with Home Alone. But it's kind of like he goes, well, here's the ones for the girls, and here's the ones for the guys, like, and, and it's a marketing thing. Mm. You know, young boys' kind of pervy sexuality is they they'll spend their money on that. Yeah, mm. it's sort of. But for me, there's there's nothing in it for a female viewer. It's got yeah. no interest at all. All that sort of stuff. With the exception of a few of his films, like he, one of his first films was Class Reunion, which was this terrible kind of spoof parody. And he even wrote on a film called Nathan Hayes, which is this young Tommy Lee Jones in a in a high seas adventure, which is basically the template for Pirates of the Caribbean. I think. Uh, some lawyers should look at that. But, um, <laughs> but there are kind of two types of films uh, that he makes. And one is like the teen drama, the weirdos trying to fit in. And the other is the desperate dad trying to do right by his family. So you've got like Mr. Mom and Planes, Uncle trains, Buck. Planes, trains, exactly. Um, vacation, the great outdoors. You know, he's, he's either, he either really relates to teens or he really relates to the you know desperate father figure who just wants a great holiday for his kids or he just wants to get home to see them. And there are very much those two modes of, of Hughes films, I think. Oh, look, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, not wanting to be cynical about it, but it's, mm. he's grabbing a different market. You know, it's like, there's the adults. Okay? And you know, let's face it, it's, it's adult marketed to men, which was what everybody was doing back then. It was, you know, that it was like we women weren't earning money. It was it's a, such an interesting thing. So again, and those are not the films that really float my boat, any of that stuff. But it, it, it comes back to when he was, his attempt to write for a female audience, I think. Let's take the date rape out of it. And yeah. you go, well, you know, for myself, I think it was a real moment in time. Molly Ringwald was a moment in time that I don't think we've seen again. Yeah. Not really. Because she, I mean, you know, she was different she was a human she wasn't a clothes horse i'm sure she could have been you know if she wanted to be and interestingly enough for me molly winwood is similar to age to myself and i've kind of kept kept following her as she is gone and she's become a mother and she's you know having a normal life it seems to be so she's not stopped being a role model and i think that's really an interesting thing it's interesting what you say about her not being a clothes horse because i'm thinking about pretty in pink and the fact that this is a film about a girl who's poor and, you know, making up her own outfits out of thrift shop finds and bargains and, um, and has her own style, which yes. is kind of mocked by other people at her high school and yet she, she's very kind of sure of herself mm-hmm. in her own style. And, but then there's that moment where she comes out in the dress at the end that she's made out of two different dresses that she's cut up and sewn together and... It is one of the great costume 
disappointments in cinema history maybe because you expected this dress to be amazing and wonderful and it's quite hideous I don't know if you remember and yet it's perfect for her now when you look at it you think okay that's why they did that that was a deliberate choice yeah I've got to say I didn't mind the dress <laughs> just i got to say I went it was very 80s it was very you know kind of cutting edge I've got to say um, the Americans did the 80s in a very different way to say the English mm. And, and like I say, Australians. But um, uh, but I kind of went with the frock. Personally speaking, I'm much more retro myself, so I do think it was a travesty to cut up those 60s dresses. <laughs> you know, but it wasn't about that. It was about her and yeah. her choices. And so, you know. I couldn't actually tell because it's the 80s. I look at that film now and I go, why is she badly dressed and everyone else is nicely dressed? Who's meant to be making fun of who? Like, it's all just weird 80s fashions to me. I can't, like, I've got face blindness. They're back now, Lee. Are they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. good. Get with the program. <laughs> Sorry, Mum. <laughs> Thank God, this is an audio-only format. <laughs> I, I find that watching those films like Pretty in Pink, 16 Candles and Breakfast Club, the Molly Ringwald character is different in each of those three films and mm. yet she seems to blend into one composite kind of complex teen girl in my head yeah well she kind of says she's saying to you here i am again yeah you know um, here's your friend i'm your friend here i am again i'm different but the same i think there is that you know yeah i think what she had and what john hughes obviously very much taps into is an incredible humanity and an accessibility i think that's he's tonally in those pictures in particular i think he he finds that wonderful tone, and we were t- talking about it earlier with, uh, in regards to um, comedy performers, where they are bordering on that, you know, teen angst and laughing at themselves and an awareness of the ridiculousness of the situation. And he just plays that tone. Obviously, he was one of a kind in, in doing that, that, that stuff, of being able to find that tone when he wrote it and when he directed it, of getting those performances just balancing, you know, on that level of Wally Ringwall being broken-hearted but always um, resilient and always having her... I mean, I do wish, and, I'm, you know, it was the 80s and I hope the future holds more for us that when we, we do... But we did have Annie Potts, but more girls' opportunities to be funny. I mean, I think that, you know, she was not the comic relief. You know, it's a John Cryer or Anthony... Yeah. It's Anthony Michael... Paul, yeah. uh, being the, the comic relief um, in all those I, w- I was annoyed seeing Ducky getting all the best lines and the best moments in Pretty in Pink. I know. And, but then I watched Some Kind of Wonderful, which is kind of Pretty in Pink, but gender flipped. But the most interesting character is Mary Stuart Masterson's Watts. I thought, oh, maybe you just like supporting characters more. Look, I mean, I feel like supporting characters often... It's like an entree. Often entrees at a restaurant are much more interesting than the main course because mm. you can experiment and do... And those your supporting characters can have quirks. That's right, and you, you know this happens always with with leads because they are every person. You know that your lead can be a little less extreme than your support characters. I mean that's mm. pretty much across the board. So yeah, you know, Molly did not get to goof off as much as Anthony Michael Hall, and look, and Ali Sheedy got to be much more extreme in a support role. Yeah, um, and be you know, strange and funny and amazing in that there are a lot of things i just want to cycle through a few few concepts there's i noticed you know watching them all in quick succession you know you pick up on the things you never watch when you watch the films individually and as he loves big extended families 
He loves two sets of in-laws, like different sets of grandparents interacting. It happens in three different films. And you've got the big family unit in Home Alone. So he really loves that sort of really traditional family. But he also really likes the middle class. Like, I never realised that his films are so... How much they centre around money. In Pretty in Pink, the family is meant to be poor, but they're doing pretty well. They live in a nice house. The first couple of vacation movies... You know, they lose all their money, which is fair enough. They're away from home. But Europe, uh, sorry, Christmas Vacation is about will he get a bonus to put in a pool or not? That's like the big emotional heft. <laughs> and that happens a few times, like the Miracle on 34th Street remake. You know, the big all these rich people get a bonus at the end, and that's the big happy. It is the 80s, remember? It is the 80s. He was also apparently, I just read this this morning, he was apparently a Republican, and which I think is only notable given how that's left of centre But then again, are. apparently so is Bruce Willis. So, oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's there's very much uh, that that sort of middle class through line, regardless of how rich or poor anyone is. They're always well, sort it's of aspirational. Know. I think that's mm. the thing about the eighties is that it, the money thing is aspirational, and the aspirational is almost like a genre that exists to this day. And mm. now it's in all the reality shows and building shows and all that sort of stuff. It's the dream of having that stuff, um, and they're also very very suburban. So, especially for Australians. We are a very suburban culture. You're in the suburbs, you're in those schools, you're, and it very much um, related to our lives as, as Australian suburban kids. Um, wanting more, you know, wanting to be what I want to be, you know, what will my life be when I grow up? I want it to be this. So I think having that aspirational element to it is also what made it, you know, drew everybody to it. Mm. And you had those characters where there was the poor character and the rich character getting together, like in Pretty in Pink and um, oh, oh, and, and 16 and Candles and Breakfast, yeah. you know. It's all there. It's there where mm. the poor boy and the rich girl or the rich girl and the poor boy get together and they overcome class differences through mm. love and yet they have to grapple with that difference and that social sort of rejection that they might face with their peers if they go out with the poor person. I mean, again, it's always that thing of going, here's something you can do. Mm. You, yeah, he, he, break the mold. Be different. It's okay to be different to break the mold to do something else. I've made a movie for you. Mm. Yeah, you know, there was that kind of um, aspect to it all. But I, look, I'm going to digress about the teens and talk about the performance of Jeffrey Jones in um, mm. Ferris Bueller, which I think should have got an Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> I guess this is the same thing with comedy versus drama. The drama is held in such high regard, and you know. Some of these comedy performances are just absolutely breathtaking, and really, in a sense, that becomes the centre of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, mm. and the thing we all relate to so well is because it's the, it's the principal losing control, like absolutely all that authority, mm. all of that stuff that we're you know, as a high school student or as a primary school student, you're under that pressure all the time of the authority is that Ferris Bueller can undo that because you are watching uh, Principal Rooney just fall to pieces mm. in the most incredible way. I, just, I find that artful. Is that I do, the thing, again, this is a skip thing that you know, my, my you know, as female viewers skipping, there is no way Ferris's sister was going to let him off the hook. I mean, I, I do understand... I have a younger sister, so there's all that tension. I really related to that. And I do relate to, you know, when it's, it, we can be adversaries and then when picked on by someone else, you come together. But I still 
think she would have punched him in the face once that door was closed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God, yeah, no, that's that's a really great point about authority, about Ferris having that control over authority, and it's maybe one, maybe one of the reasons it's endured so much. Like, even... Like, the last Spider-Man film was not... They only said, we're going to try and make a John Hughes film instead of a superhero film. They actually did the Ferris Bueller running through the, the backyards as a direct <laughs> homage to that. And, I mean, what is it? Did you see the, the new Wonder Woman film that's shooting? They did a photo shoot where they're all recreating the Breakfast Club poster. Like, these films are so stuck in... Like, even when you're in a completely different genre, 30 years later, they still can't help but reference... The John Hughes films. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think The Breakfast Club is really a play. It's a theatre piece. Um, mm. I mean, it may have been done because you're in one, you're on one set, mm. and it's an interior film. You know, it's one of those things. Working now as a director, that can be a real concern for producers and people. Going, oh, we're really interior. We've got to get out. We've got to get out. And you think, well, look at The Breakfast Club. It was all about being a prison. Mm. Yeah, you know, I guess it's that thing. It's a prison movie. Because it's you know they're all in that um, one spot, and again we've got that beautiful character. I mean, it is a caricature, but you know you've got the teacher who's looking after them in, in authority, being completely undone. Like mm. you know, there's just something about all those characters banded together and being you as a as a viewer. I think you know I don't know how I would feel about it now if I saw them for the first time, but when I mm. saw them then. And um, we spoke before about you know when I was a real youngster being so absolutely let Star Wars rock my world as a teen to be included like that. I mean, even though your brain as a female viewer does skip those things that confront you and, and leave you out. And I think at the end of the day, Rooney, Ferris and Molly Ringwald's characters, you know, they're the reasons why they stick in my mind. Hmm. That and the fact that the images are so beautiful. Yeah, but looking at The Breakfast Club now, you think there would never be a mainstream teen movie that would try to just have a bunch of characters in a room chatting to each other. I mean, it's really talky. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm not saying it's not cinematic, but it, it's not really about... It's like 12 Acre Men, but for teenagers. Yeah, I mean, this would be an, <laughs> this would be an art house film now. Yeah, yeah. it's really, it's, yeah. really int- it's really unique and... And of its of its time as well, yeah. And again, the, the use of music in those movies is so wonderful. Mm. Like, yeah, you know, just takes you back, doesn't it? Yeah, really, it included <laughs> you. It was things that you liked and things that yeah. You know. I'm just trying to think back. You know, before that, that didn't really exist. Mm. You know, um, the understanding of of the teen experience wasn't really there. I don't think you know my parents watched Rebel Without a Cause and went, "Oh my God, speaking to me." You know, in fact, it was it's from a, a distance. It's from a delinquent kind of thing. But whereas mm. this was about your experience, you knew all those characters. You, they, they were there. They were you know in your world. I wonder if like even though it is very talky, it's very high concept. Like, there's one thing like his films don't have a lot of progression. There are a lot of high concept films that exhaust their high concept half an hour in and they go, okay, where are we going to take this? But he, he almost treats them like sketches where you've got your premise and you stick to the premise and it's just a bunch of things that happen within that premise. And the title tells you exactly what you're getting on the box. You've got Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 16 Candles, Your Family Forgets Your Birthday, uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles. You know, it tells you these are the things you're going to take to get home. Home Alone. Like Home Alone has the exact same plot pretty much of career opportunities, which is like the late teenage version of that where, you know, Frank Whaley is like a 20-year-old who gets, who is locked into a department store he's meant to be looking after. And it's kind of the same plot, 
But it's, it's not nearly as good. Home Alone is perfectly constructed. Career opportunities is not. But also the title doesn't tell you what you're getting. And his biggest successes seem to be like, here are th- two to three words that will tell you exactly what this film is. And, it's, and the characters are so relatable, even though the concept is so high and fantastical. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's that brilliant combination of his writing style and his directing style. And, mm. and whatever it was about him um, that understood the tone that he was going for, which is, you know, that intangible, ephemeral thing. You go, this John Hughes tone. You can't recreate it. And I guess we, we could chat about it for hours and we'll mm. never be able to truly understand what it, what it was. Mm. I mean, his films have a kind of gross-out gross humour. There's a vulgarity to some of the um, things that happen, especially with Lampoons, but even with The Breakfast Club and Pretty in Pink and all of that. And yet the characters remain warm. And I think that's something, you know, that gross-out humour with, with the warmth is something that other teen films have tried to do but maybe not quite so successfully. I mean, the way they talk about sex and, and you know, they smoke a joint and there's, there's sex, drugs and rock and roll and yet it doesn't feel like they're it's being... It's not alienating. Yeah. No, it is, yeah. It's, it, 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 somehow it's the same as your experience with it as a, as a teenage person. It includes you. Again, that's a tonal thing. And I do... I, even though he's a Republican, I do, wish he, <laughs> I, I do wish he was alive so I could chat with him about it today and go, yeah. there will be questions I would want to ask him about tone. We have tone meetings in all these things that we do as directors and, and it means different things to different people and it is a really intangible thing of going, well, what's the tone? And somehow he had a way... With those particular films, as I say, the vacation films and all that sort of stuff, it, not really what I'm kind of talking about today it's really those those molly ringwald films and the the ferris bueller one and what his headspace was in creating and talking to those actors and getting those performances and just pitching in that in that way to make them quite unique i mean it is a shame that those other elements you know with the with the date rape stuff and with the objectification stuff are there but they are there in so many movies and television Still to this day, I've got to say, I think we went backwards after the 70s and 80s. I think it's got worse. I don't want to, you know, there are certain really high profile television series which I don't want to bang on about, but yeah. I just go, how can, you, how, can you, how can you say that about this film? I mean, I, okay, the reason why we noticed it in John Hughes' film is because they were young people, and that, you know, should not happen. But we watch it happening all the time with adult females still in high profile successful series and it is like people go oh that's just part of being an adult or that's just part of the genre or that's just and I go I'm still excluded I'm excluded from watching I don't want to watch but that's why I kind of keep coming back to the fact that I thought you know do I ring you guys and say oh let's not talk about it but no I cannot deny the fact of the effect it had on me Mm. of including me as a young teenage woman teenage Mm. girl teenage whatever so yeah. I still wanted to acknowledge the effect that had on me and it kind of in a sense going forward you know when I became a comedy performer when I've done offspring and things that have got lighter stuff is that he's always in my mind tonally going this is very sad but it's also very funny and how we can flip between because he was a master at that mm. well I think we've definitely covered the good and the bad about him um and I think we've formed what we should call the mid-afternoon snack club. That's not as catchy as the breakfast club or anything. Um, Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having me. And we'll see the rest of you next month. Bye-bye.